Uh, we are going to be actually in, uh, not in Romans, we're going to take a break because it's Palm Sunday, Easter is here, Passion Week, so Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, and so this morning we're going to look at the triumphal entry from Matthew 21, so if it'll be on the screens in your bulletin if you want to look it up, uh, it will be in Matthew 21 in a little bit, and then this weekend we're going to kind of take a different route uh, to the crucifixion and uh, resurrection story that Stephen will share from you, share with you uh, in, this weekend, and it's going to be a really great time. So we look forward to 7 p.m. on Friday night and the two services on Sunday. A few quick notes. Uh, Pastor Stephen and his family are up in L.A. this weekend, getting a nice little break and just spending some family time. So I think they come back late tomorrow night. So you just pray for them if you think about it, that they would be enriched and just have a great time. Instagram appears like they're having a really, really good time if you follow them. So it looks like they're having a blast. And so we asked uh, my dear friend Brian Schaefer from Redeemer to come, and he is going to be leading us in communion and the benediction. So when this like really big guy you don't recognize comes up and starts talking about the body and blood, that's who he is. Good guy. He checks out. We know him, and uh, we appreciate him uh, to come down. Yeah, so Tom, don't come tackle him or anything. Like It's okay. Just let him come do his thing. But uh, we are excited. Uh, for him to be here. Thank you. Um, this morning we're going to wrestle with uh, this idea of things uh, in our life that we might uh, need, but that we don't want. And there's a lot of places we could go with that, um, but in, where we're going to go, it's probably, hopefully, maybe obvious already, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus. So uh, that's kind of the focus of it. Just tip my hand right away. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in our life that we need, often things that we should do, and that we, we, don't, we don't really want to. And uh, I saw on Facebook that Michelle Corbett, uh, who is one of our members that we love, I don't know if she's here, I've not seen that shock of red hair yet, but she's around somewhere. Um, she uh, recently, I don't know the title, she uh, recently took the job, I believe it's a vice president of marketing, perhaps, at uh, San Diego Blood Bank, which is awesome. And she's doing great work, if you follow her on Facebook, to help uh, lift that organization up and push them as they continue to reach out to get more people to give more blood um, to save more lives. And I, I love that organization. Um, I am a regular blood giver, and uh, I will say this week I'm going to go because uh, you can go every eight weeks, and I try to go as often as I can. My eight weeks was a couple weeks ago. It's been busy. But um, she has a competition with her president. She's been there like less than a month. She already has a competition with the president of the blood bank to see who can get the most people to come give blood before Easter. So this is my plug for her. Like, think about it. Go help save life. Help her just look awesome. Tell her that you came, and, um, and, and, and she will be super excited. So here, here, I'm really excited because as of this week, I'll have gone 16 times in the last 10 years since I moved here to San Diego. And so I'll be at two gallons, which is frightening. And sorry if you're going to pass out already. Uh, that's a lot. I know. I'm excited. And I, and, I, and I was feeling like I'm the two-gallon club. Like, I'm excited. I'm, I'm pumped, you know? And I'm a little proud of this because... Um, it's just one of those, it's an hour out of every two months that like, I can see it actually, it's, you can save up to three lives is what they say. Um, that's, that's a lot of lives. And so it's exciting. And then Michelle goes and posts this article on Facebook this morning from the San Diego Union Tribune that some lady just finished giving her 100th gallon. That's ridiculous. I know. Like, is she, how is she alive? How is this happening? It's amazing. Um, I just did a shocking, and so there goes all my pride out the window. So I mean, she, yeah, you can do the math. That's ridiculous how many times she's been, and it says she still doesn't like needles, but she still keeps going. So if you're still with me and you haven't passed out yet, two things. Uh, 
Think about giving blood. It's it's super awesome. You get free nutter butters. I mean, come on. It's it's really good. It's a really good deal. And uh, you can even get like free stuff. You get free car washes. So there's there's you know alternative motivations for doing these sorts of things. Um, and you save a life. And consider that. And maybe go this week and tell Michelle that you went, and she'll be super pumped because we love her and we think saving lives is important. Unofficial plug on behalf of our church. Um, and second of all, like yeah, that's a thing that we probably all. Could you, can, I know we can't all do it. And it's super inconvenient. But that's just one more thing, right, in our life that we need to do. Um, and yet we don't want to. And so we're going to be talking today about Jesus and um, how he is the one we, we need. And yet he's not always the one we want. And I'm sure that's also a country song of some <laughs> sort. But it's, it's real, Right? Like, that's a real thing. So this week for Easter, this is kind of what I want to tee us up on, talking about this King, Jesus, that we need, but we don't always want. So let's enter into that space. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into Matthew 21, and, uh, and we'll do that. So that's, I want to pray again for me, for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for hope. Thank you for death leading to life. Thank you that you are, you are exactly what we need, but you're so much better than everything else we want, and we still turn away from you, and that's why we need you. So thanks. Thanks for being so good. Help us to come back again this morning, and if there's people here who, have, who are just like, I don't believe this, or I'm not sure, or they don't get it yet, um, just ask for your spirit to be here and teach all of us. Show us your, your goodness, and show us why we need you, and, and, and help us to want you even today, Father. I pray in your name. Amen. Matthew 21, uh, verse 1 to 11. This is Jesus and his disciples. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to, to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So a mom and a, a young donkey. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you, sh- you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. The people needed, these Jews needed this king. They needed Jesus as their king. And we're going to tip our hand a little bit of our two points this morning, but they didn't want him. The people needed Jesus as their king. I want to take a second to rehearse some of this like Old Testament uh, biblical theology is the fancy word of this story of how they got here. Um, and it's super important. So I want us to get this because 
they are working with this knowledge and obviously a lot more uh, back then, the, the, the Jews, these people. So the biggest moment for the Jews in the Old Testament is the Passover and the Exodus. That's the moment, right, when God rescued them from Egypt, delivered them from Pharaoh, this massive nation who they were enslaved to. They plunder Egypt, they go across, uh, the miracle happens, the sea you know, crashes on them, he delivers them, and they go away, and, and Moses goes and meets with God up on the mountain, and God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And God puts his stamp on the nation of Israel in a way that he had not done yet before. He had rescued Noah. He had promised Abraham to build him into a nation. He had worked through Jacob and Joseph. But this moment in the Exodus, it, that's it. And that's why Passover is such a big deal to this day to Jewish people. Because that's when God said, you are mine. This is the moment. So years pass and they finally make it, right? They wander in the desert, make it in the promised land. And they have prophets who are speaking in the word of God. They have priests who are, are, are living out the law that they had received and, and are, are um, interceding on their behalf to God. And they start to grumble because, no, you know, it's, it's not working. And so they ask for judges. So judges come in. Joshua judges working through the books with me. Uh, judges come in and begin to rule the land. And God has these intermediaries, the, the, the prophets and the priests and the judges, but God is the king. It's a, it's a true, the only true theocracy. God is their ultimate king. But they start to not, they start, they start to, to look at the other nations and say, we, we want a, a human king like them. We want to be like them. So here we are judging, right? Oh, they don't even want God as our king. Like, neither do we, right? So, but they're saying, we don't, we don't want God as our king. And so they says in 1 Samuel 8, and it's up on the screen, I think. Uh, the people say to, to Samuel, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prays to the Lord. And the Lord says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So the people want this human king, and they say, we don't want God. And it's, I, mean, I love that God's even like, they keep doing this. He like kind of lays it on pretty thick. Like He's like, it's not you, it's, really, it's them. They're the problem here. And... Um, because for the Israelites, the Jews, the God of the universe thing, being their king, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough. They're rejecting God as king, and they're asking for a human king. We have the benefit of history and of scripture to know, like, how'd that go? Well, mixed results, but mostly horribly. Um, it starts with Saul, who's the first king of Israel, and he does some good stuff, and, and then he just goes you know, off the deep end, and he loses, and he's, he's not, not, not a great king. And, and, but eventually he's replaced by David, who comes up and that famous affair with Bathsheba. And David's kind of a mixed bag as well. He does some amazing stuff, and he also does some stuff that's super sketchy. But he's still phenomenal, and that's the moment the Jews are like, this king is awesome, we love David. And he's so good that after David, within two generations, the kingdom is now split, and we have two kings over two different parts of Israel. And 38 or so kings later, they're so faithless and have abandoned God to the degree that the Nebuchadnezzar shows up with Babylon because they will not turn back to God. They will not follow their human or divine king, or the, the human kings won't even follow God himself. 
and they become, they become captives, right, of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Forty-some-odd kings, faithlessness abounds. This human king does not help them in the way they want. They're captured and taken over by Babylon, and then about 618 or so years later, we're in this moment in Matthew 21. Now their captives are the Romans. The Jews have been controlled for hundreds of years and continue to turn their back on God. And they're, they're starving for a Messiah, a king, to show up. They needed a savior king to come and overthrow the Romans, and that's what they wanted. And right at that moment, this carpenter slash day laborer named Jesus, with no formal rabbinic education, starts healing people and performing miracles and teaching a radical new take on the law and God's word that is spinning circles around the experts of the day. And he's even alleged to have raised a few people from the dead from their perspective. I believe he did, obviously, from scripture. And at that precise moment in Matthew 21, 3, it says that Jesus sends two disciples to go get a donkey and a colt. Matthew is the only version, this is all four uh, gospels, it's the only one where they talk about two animals. That's troubling to you, just know that its emphasis is usually the younger colt. Matthew was actually there at the time, the other ones weren't, so maybe it was kind of both, that he was riding the young donkey but asked for two, etc. little scriptural thing there if you want. Um, so he says, go get me a young donkey, a donkey that has never been ridden. And the disciples head out and they begin stealing these donkeys, essentially. And the people say, but Jesus prepared them for it. They're like, whoa, 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 that's our donkeys. And, and then uh, they say, well, the Lord needs these donkeys, like a Jesus Jedi mind trick. They're like, the Lord needs these donkeys. <laughs> and, um, and it works because he's Jesus. And they say, great. And so they bring him over and they, they put these cloaks on these donkeys and Jesus um, sits up on the cloaks. I don't think he's actually on the plural donkeys. I think he's just on the one. Read the text. It's, it's in there. I, I had to find a commentary to teach me that. I'm like, okay, that makes more sense. Um, so Jesus climbs up on the baby donkey, the young donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem, right? And that is a tr- picture of triumph, if I've ever seen one. Like, this is the triumphal entry. Jesus on a donkey, and people start taking their clothes off and throw it for the donkey to walk on, Right? Why? Like, why? Why is this the moment? Why is this like it? So I just want to point out a few quick things about the next few verses. Riding a donkey from scripture equals Messiah. Riding a donkey means here comes the king. In Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew quotes, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, a colt. The Jews understood Zechariah in this section to refer to Messiah, and often in terms of the son of David, meaning the lineage of David, but also the next great king. David was the best king they ever had. They missed the days of David. The new David is going to come up, and, 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 and Zechariah 9.9 is talking about how he will ride a donkey into the city of David, into Jerusalem. And so, and there's also in 1 Kings 1, and David tells Solomon, you're the king now, and he, he take my donkey, and, which is awesome. Take my donkey and go, and like, that's how he's anointed king, and, and it happens in another place too. So there's this biblical evidence, riding a donkey equals Messiah. So think of this weird moment as a living parable, a symbolic act of self-disclosure for those with eyes to see. Here comes the king triumphantly entering the capital city on a young donkey, not on a a war horse or camel, as a sign of victory 
and of peace, returning to a, a city after he has already won the battle. One guy wrote, Jesus was not only proclaiming his messiahship and his fulfillment of scripture, but showing the kind of peace-loving approach that he was making to the city, the type of king he would be. And so the people get it, right? Messiah, donkey, Jerusalem. The people start like freaking out. They're literally taking their clothes off and laying it down them. And, and that's a big deal too, because again, remember, they basically wore like two types of clothes and they probably owned like a set of two types of clothes. They had their undergarments and they had their outer garment or their cloaks. So they're like stripping down to the nethers and they're just laying this stuff down. And, that, and the donkey is not in a clean area. And donkeys, I don't think are that clean, are trotting on their stuff as a sign of reverence and worship to this coming king. Again, cloaks and even the palm branches that they're cutting and they're laying before him, this is a biblical picture of kingship. So this is a very clear statement to them. Um, in 2 Kings 9, when Jehu is told via a secret messenger, I like to think of it as like Uber in the Old Testament, this guy shows up and Jehu is with all these commanders and he's like, oh, can I talk to you? And he's like, sure. And he goes, um, uh, so God said you're going to be king. And he's like, what? And he said, yeah, that's what God said. And that's, you don't just say that. And he's like, okay. And then the messenger takes off and all the other commanders are like, so what was that all about? And he's like, oh, that's no big deal. Literally, that's what he says. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. 2 Kings 9. Eh, it's not right. And they're like, no, really, tell us what he said. And he's like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm the king now. And they're like, what? And they all start taking off their outer garments and they start laying things before him because he cannot walk on regular ground because he is now king. And they freak out in 2 Kings 9. You are king. So when these people start doing this stuff, they're clothing all this. It means you're king. Here comes King Jesus. And then they began shouting this stuff, right? And we've heard these songs we sang it this morning. Verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we know that's Psalm 118 that they're kind of parroting, they're mimicking. Hosanna um, means save now. It's a Hebrew word. And it was such a significant word in Psalm 118 that they would sing during, these, um, during Passover and other rituals. This group of psalms, specifically Psalm 118, they would say over and over, as they are rehearsing Passover and looking forward to this new coming king, they would sing this every year, about three times a year in different festivals. And from Psalm 118, it says, Save us, Hosanna, that's the actual the translation in Psalms. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So this, this proclamation they're making, and they say, Hosanna to the son of David, the coming king, this lineage. Here comes our king. So donkey riding into their capital equals king. Taking off their cloaks and laying them before him and the branches and everything equals king. Hosanna equals king. Like they get it in this moment, this group of people. Jesus was the king they needed. Jesus at this moment was the king that the people wanted. He was the Messiah and they see it. And that's why we have Matthew 21. I mean, that's the point of this text that Jesus is even kind of arranging and setting up for us. For the first time, he is publicly announcing in uncertain terms, I'm sorry, in absolutely certain terms and not in uncertain terms, I am king, here I come, Jerusalem. And he rides into the city. So what happened? 
Um, clearly, there's a record scratch, like something goes horribly wrong, right? And um, there's a moment that reminds me of this in our own life on much lesser important scale. But um, when Casey and I found out that she was pregnant with our second kid, uh, Piper, we decided to, it would be fun to, to tell her family in a fun way. And so I was like, oh, bun in the oven. This is great. So we're having a dinner, and this goes, of course, really well. So we're having a dinner at her family's house, and, um, and only her mom and her aunt knew there's about 12 more family members of her family there. And I go and I grab a literal like little Hawaiian bun or something and put it in the, in the oven at, at her parents' house. And then I go, and I'm like, hey, guys, something with the oven. Can you, we're all coming in to have dinner. And I'm like, Tessa, Casey's sister, who's like super loud and over the top and really wonderful if she's listening to this. And so she, uh, she just tends to be like, yeah, she's the loudest person in the room, and she, we love her. So I'm like, oh, get Tessa. And Tessa used to work at a burger place. I'm like, Tessa, I got something with the oven. Can you come help me? And her stepdad's like, oh, I'll help. I'm like, no, 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 I just need Tessa because I know she's going to be like, what? You're pregnant. And get it, right? So easy. So um, I bring Tessa over the oven. I'm like, here it is. And she opens it up and she sees the bun and she looks at me and her eyes get real big and she goes, and she's silent. She's like mouthing to me like, you're pregnant. I'm like, yeah, like, do you want to like make the announcement? Yes, yes. You know, like that, you're getting it. That's right. And she kind of like steps back. And then uh, Casey's stepdad runs in like, what's, what's wrong with the oven? What's it? And he, he pulls down the oven. He's like, there's bread. Who put bread in the oven? Why is there bread in my oven? There's a bun. Someone put a bun in the oven. Why is there a bun in the oven? And I, I'm like, I, I guess I put the bun in the oven. I don't know. Like I, I, I'm, and and what is, what's happening or whatever? And, and everyone kind of stops and the whole family's in this room. And I'm like, okay, this is actually working out really well outside of Gene not quite getting that part. And I was like, why is there bread? And so, um, and so then uh, Casey's sister-in-law turns, or no, someone looks at Aaron, uh, Casey's sister-in-law, um, and says, are you pregnant? And she's like, I'm not pregnant. And someone looks over at Tessa and goes, are you pregnant? She's like, I'm not pregnant. And here, this is the moment, right? I'm like, this is working so good. And so they look at Casey and they go, are you pregnant? And she's like, hmm. <laughs> Mommy? And I'm like, and I look at I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I have manufactured this to perfection. Like, this is it. The moment happened. Which you, you're supposed to go, you guess, like, yay, we're pregnant. Ah! You know, that was the moment that was supposed to happen. She's like, oh. And I'm just like, I'm flabbergasted. She felt a lot of pressure. I love my wife. God bless her. And she just, she couldn't handle it. She couldn't handle the stage. It's all right. Couldn't come up in the clutch. Not me. Um, so then her 20-year-old-ish cousin says, oh, yeah, guys, I'm sorry. I'm pregnant. I wanted to tell you. And I'm like, and it's like, you know, I'm just like, oh, and I'm like, that's no. And then like, what are we like? Oh, no, it's like, we're going to wrestle the bun back. Like, what is this? It's so ridiculous, this moment. And I, it's just classic, right? Um, and so we were like, I'm like, no, we find like, no, actually, we are, we are pregnant. And they're like, what? And then everyone, it's just confusion and not jubilation per se. Just like a lot of, she's like, haha, just kidding. I'm like, yeah, you, that didn't. Um. We had the moment. It was perfect. It was teed up to perfection. It worked. And then it didn't. And I was just thinking about this, and I'm like, this seriously, Jesus is on the donkey, and he's riding into Jerusalem, and the cloaks and the palms, they're shouting, Hosanna and Jesus, and they all get it, and they're like, and the disciples are like, this is it. This is awesome. 600 years later, teed up to perfection, and Jesus is the king that they needed. And this, no, it just it didn't work, Right? Um, we'll look forward a little bit into Easter as we wrap up in a few minutes, but a, a, f- a few chapters earlier in Matthew 16, if you remember, 
Right after Peter directly declares, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. And he's like, yeah, you got it. And he goes, and this is what that means. I'm actually going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed, but I'm going I'm to rise again. And then Peter's like, rebukes Jesus, right? Jesus just gets done telling Peter, like, I'm going to build my church on you because you get it. And then Peter's like, you will not do that, Jesus. No, and like rebukes Jesus. And Jesus' response to him is, one of my favorite things to just say in general, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, and those are like gnarly words to come after. Yes, I am the Christ, and this now I'm going to die, and if you want to follow me, you have to die too. That was his plan A, right? He self-discloses, he explains five chapters before this Matthew 21 incident to his crew, this is how this is going to go. And you're not going to like it. And their spokesman rebukes him. For Jesus, this was plan A. And just a quick aside, don't miss this. He did not come to Jerusalem to begin a revolution. When they turn, when the, when the Jewish leaders turn on him a few days later, Jesus is not surprised. Jesus was never plan B, ever. In, in Acts chapter 3, in Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, this was predestined before the foundations of time for Jesus to come and do, it was plan A all along. And that might mess with like your time warp, eating, but we can talk about that later. But just so you know, like Jesus is to come and die and be this redeemer for us was always, always plan A. He came to be rejected. He came to suffer. He came to die and to rise again. The people wanted a victorious king, but Jesus was planning to be killed. And as he was riding in on a donkey... They were thinking about, we're going to finally get rid of the Romans after 600 years of just not having a king. We're going to set up like this bureaucracy and royalty. It's going to be awesome. But Jesus was not thinking about that, right? He was thinking eternal kingdom. They wanted relief from their human oppressors. Jesus was promising forgiveness for the sins of all mankind. They needed Jesus as their king. And they didn't want him. Not this way. That was the first point. They, the people needed Jesus as their king. They didn't want him. Our second point today, um, and don't worry, there's just two, and it was front heavy. We, and you're like, we're going to be here all day. We always need Jesus as our king. We always need it. They needed it, and they didn't want it. We always need it. Most of us have come to this moment. I, I think for most of us in this room, the fact that you're here says that you, this problem might not be news. Um, but why do we need Jesus? And I think the reason we need Jesus is because of what happens following the triumphal entry. Following Sunday. That's why we need him. He starts teaching. He just angers the, the elite and the, the religious and the politicians 
um, plot together to get him arrested on false charges. He does not defend himself. He comes before a few different judges, and he still will not defend himself. He, he delivers himself after much anguish and agony. This was a difficult choice for him to make. He knew he was going to make it, but he did it anyways. And this innocent God-man is crucified as a criminal, one of the worst deaths that we can imagine. And yet that's not even the point, right? It's not about the nails and the, thorn, the, thorn of, the crown of thorns and the spear. And all. It's, it's, it's about like God the Father is dumping and pouring out his wrath for every sin that we have ever made on him in that moment. And because he lived a perfect life and he had fulfilled the law for us, he could stand there on that cross and choose to bear the sins of the world and face the wrath of his father, who he was one with. And then he died. I get that that's Easter, it's a week, but I think we know the story, and I think it's important to make it, right? That was plan A, and he stuck to it to a T. That was the Jesus that the Jews needed, but they didn't want, and that's the Jesus that we need. So that when Jesus rose from the dead, around three days later, he... He can now offer to you and to me in the world new life and redemption and renewal. He now has this plan to use us. He chose us to use me and you and people to bring hope and forgiveness and renewal to our families and to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces and to our cities and to our nations to go out and spread this incredible, powerful message as we receive the righteousness of Christ. He rose against the... He could invite us to know him and the Father by simply believing. And that's what we needed more than anything. And that's why we always need him. Mankind has always needed him, but we don't still. So we always needed him. He's our king. But we don't always want him, right? So even despite that beautiful picture and this thing, this gospel, we always need that kingship of Jesus every day, every moment. And yet even us who are like in on this story, we're like, yeah, totally, I'm excited. This is, I'm ex- Jesus, let's pray, let's do communion. We still don't want him, right? M- me too, obviously. Um, by God's design, a friend came over yesterday and we were hanging out and talking and it was really good and it was a busy day and he's like, man, I need to talk. I'm like, great, let's come over, let's talk. And um, I was just thankful for it. He was feeling beat down by some stuff in his life and his work was super overwhelming and he was feeling isolated and depressed and he didn't want to share with and... He's feeling faithless, and he's having such a hard time. He's, he's a strong believer. He knows he loves the Lord, and yet he said this to me yesterday. Um, I'm pretty exhausted, and I thought he was going to say, by all this stuff in my life. He said, I'm pretty exhausted running away from God right now. And I was like, that's it. I'm exhausted running away from God. He knew he needed Jesus yesterday. He's a believer, But the weight of this separation, the overwhelmingness of the stuff he was facing, tempted him to believe that he either wasn't worthy of facing or that he had to somehow get right. I told him, like, are you thinking you need to get right before God? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, you can't. (laughs) Like, you can't do that. Jesus does that for you. I said, I think you need to work on, like, your, like, general, like, disposition towards him. Like, just turn and face him. You need him now, and that's all you need. You just need to turn and face him. You don't need to prove yourself to Jesus before he'll start meeting you again. And he was like, oh, yeah, because we know this stuff, right? 
There's a million ways we feel this, this burdens that make us turn away from Christ, these circumstances, relationships, work, family, debt, sin, lust, hate, politics, everything about Syria in the past six years, our kids, dental work. Like There's so much stuff happening in life over and over again that tempt us and distract us and compete with our affections for Jesus so that we don't want to worship him as king and recognize him, right? All this good stuff. My daughter, Winnie, whenever she sees a phone, she's two and a half, and uh, she's a piece of work. I love her. She sees a phone, and, and this just reminds me of like this, the way our hearts are distracted by good and bad and excuses and everything but Jesus. She sees a phone. She's like, can I, can I have it? Can I have the phone? Can I have it? Can I have the phone? Can I, have the fo- I want the phone. I want the phone. Can I touch it? Can I touch the phone? I just want to touch it. Can I have the phone? We're like... This is like chill out, you know. And she's like, "That's what the phone." And we don't—we're not like a screen time family. Like we said no for a really long time. And um, thankful for my in-laws, but other people gave her the phone, and and we probably did too. And so like, yeah, can I have it? I want to touch it. Can I do this? And then now she knows like the six-digit code to get into the phone, and she knows she's like swiping and like dismissing, and she's like, she sent some of you text messages. You know this? Um, I'm not joking. She has. And I would argue that iPhones are, are good, maybe. I think they're good. Uh, I like them. But that's what we do with good stuff, right? With sex and food and, and money and beauty and power and love. And we take beautiful stuff and we twist them and we serve them and we worship them instead of the king who, who gave us this stuff to use and enjoy and delight in him with. Maybe not iPhones, but everything else. Even though we have... King Jesus, we don't want him. We want approval from someone else. We want to feel secure on our own terms. We want attention and affection, all this stuff. We have the greatest king of the universe, our savior, God himself, and yet we don't want him. So a quick church plug. That's the reason we're here today, right? That's the reason God said once a week you need to show up and talk to each other. That's the reason God made church for us. We weren't made to show up here. God made this for us to come together and go, oh yeah, I need him again. That's the reason we have small groups, life groups on a regular basis that meet together every week and in a way that you can't do on a Sunday morning. You can turn and hopefully be honest and open up and say, I, I forgot again and I need, I need him. I need Jesus, not this other stuff or I'm feeling this burden. That's why we do Lent, right? So we put off that something good or bad in our life and put on Jesus to remember, looking forward to Easter about the goodness of King Jesus. That's why we pray, to remember, like there's this spiritual reality happening in this intersection of the divine with the boring mundane of my life. And it elevates it. That's why we have scripture to point us to the word. That's why we need church. That's why we have the spirit of the Holy Spirit with us to teach us and comfort us and prod us. That's why we have Jesus. Because we need him. So, my, um, yeah, we always need Jesus as our king. The, the title this morning is Rejoice, the Lord is King. Jesus has come and conquered death, and he offers abundant life a week after this happens in Matthew 21. So we can lay down everything we have, and not just our cloaks, but that we can go and worship him as our king. So um, just two quick questions to close, and I want to just give us a minute to think about them. We're actually closing when I say that. Number one, um, why is it hard for me, for us, 
to choose to worship Jesus as king every day or any day. I'm not mean like, why is it hard to not have a devotion time or why is it hard to not have a choir? I just mean like, why is this, why do we keep not wanting him? There's a lot of reasons, but I think that's something good to think about. Why is it so hard again for me to stop choosing him? And second, in light of that, how can you rejoice in the kingship of Jesus today? And Easter week, how can you choose to rejoice in the kingship of Jesus in your own life this week? So as we close, I just wanted to literally take like 60 seconds. Because this, ser- this sermon was kind of like a high, like, meta, kingship, Jesus, need, want thing. And I just was struck that I wanted to, to have, like, I could try to spend a half an hour and p- pull out this stuff and say, well, for you, what, you, here's a list of ten things, and might it be for you, but you know you. And most of you have already answered this question at some point, at least number one in the sermon, like, oh, yeah, I need to do this. But can we just take a minute and maybe go before the Lord and just pray or be silent or be thankful or ask for forgiveness or just be like, yes, thank you for Easter. Can you just bow your head for a minute and maybe talk to Jesus about this stuff? Why is it hard to recognize him as king in general for you? And how can you flip that narrative today and rejoice in him today and this week? Let's just take a minute and and do some work with the Lord. Jesus, thank you for being my king. Thank you for being my Lord. Thank you for being my savior. Thank you that when I get it, that when you let me hit enough speed bumps in my life, like having to preach a sermon or uh, praying or whatever it is, that you remind me once again about my need for you and about how good you are. Thanks that despite all of our foolishness, that even though we're just like the people in this story, we worship you one day and then turn our backs on the next that you, you get that, and that's why you came for me. That's why you came for us and you meet us. Father, please remind us with your spirit about how much we need Jesus today. Thank you for communion in a few minutes that we get to partake and be reminded of the resurrected Christ. Thank you uh, for Easter week, for Good Friday, for Lent, that you remind us again of the goodness of the resurrection of Christ. Help us today and this week to just turn away from whatever it is or to come back to you or just to delight in you again for your goodness. Thank you for King Jesus, Father. We love you so much and we pray in your name. Amen.